This episode was produced in partnership with Eugene. I would leave these meetings and I think, we can do this, we can change the world, we can empower hundreds and thousands of people with this information that has so historically been like really controlled. And then I would wake up the next morning and go, nah, nah, it's too hard. And that went on for about six months. And I finally turned the corner when I spoke to an incredible mentor of mine. I said, David, I've got this idea. I've met this guy. This is what we're thinking about. And he said, Zoe, I think this has legs. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. Today's guest is Zoe Milgram. She is the co-founder of Eugene Labs, a health tech startup whose ambition is to make genetic testing available to everyone. Zoe began her career as a genetic counsellor. And if you have never heard of that job title, it's probably because there are only about 480 of them across Australia. It's a super niche profession. Counselors decode complex information for patients about their genetic conditions, and they also provide emotional and psychosocial support for genetic diagnosis. As you'll hear, it is an intense and emotionally taxing job. Zoe had been a genetic counsellor for about a decade until in 2017, while she was on mat leave, she started thinking about how there had to be a more simple and more affordable way to offer genetic tests to the broader community. It was at this exact moment the stars aligned and she met her co-founder Kunal. And after six months of co-founder dating, they set out to change the genetic testing landscape, providing an end-to-end online experience for patients. In this chat, we covered the challenges around scaling a health tech company where the margin of error is zero, how Eugene secured millions of dollars in venture funding and how the current economic climate has forced them to rethink their fundraising strategy, and how overcoming fear has been a central theme of Zoe's startup story. All right. So Zoe, you began your career as a genetic counsellor. Can you tell me a little bit about what actually is a genetic counsellor? What was your career journey before you started Eugene? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, a genetic counsellor is essentially an allied health professional and we work alongside medical specialists to provide personalised information and risk assessments to patients and families who are at risk or who are facing a genetic diagnosis. And basically, genetic counsellors are all about providing client-centred care. So we're super passionate about helping people to understand and adapt to medical, psychological and the family implications of the genetic contributions to disease. Prior to founding Eugene, I worked across the public and private healthcare systems for well over a decade. And basically what I did in that role was meet people at various stages of their genetic diagnostic odyssey and help them to understand what those results meant and really provide them that psychosocial support that they needed to adjust to these diagnoses. I was supporting people across all different stages of life, from planning to pregnancy, to the loss of much-wanted pregnancies and children, and also adjusting to personal diagnoses. It was an incredibly humbling career and really, really powerful 
to support these people during their times of crisis and help them to make really, really impossible decisions in that time. Genetic counsellors traditionally work in public or tertiary healthcare settings, and that's what I did beforehand. So that must be quite an emotionally taxing job for you to provide that level of care and support. How many people are diagnosed with a genetic condition? So we think about 2 to 3% of the population have a genetic condition which will influence their health at some point in their life. And traditionally, genetic counsellors would only really see those people who had a strong family history of a genetic condition and were trying to predict whether they would um, end up experiencing symptoms of that condition or around pregnancy planning. So if a couple were aware that they are at risk of having a child with a genetic condition, either because they had already had a child born with a specific thing or they had a niece or a nephew, we would be seeing them in a reproductive setting. But really genetic counsellors were only seeing people for predictive or diagnostic testing. So it was really about 2 to 3% of the population at that time. And during our research, I think we came across a stat that said there's something like 250 or 300 genetic counsellors across Australia, like a really, really tiny number. Why are there so few? And I guess your product and your service operates in this space and there's only so many people that actually can do this job. Why are there so few? For a little bit of context, because genetic counselling is a relatively unknown profession, it's really a relatively new thing in and of itself. So the concept of counselling around inheritance and genetics really arose in the 1950s, but it probably wasn't until the late 80s that the profession of genetic counselling started to become formalised. To be a genetic counsellor, you need to do a postgraduate master's qualification, which covers both the genetic education component and the counselling skills that we utilise as genetic counsellors on a day-to-day basis. And in Australia, there are currently two programs out there and their intake is probably around at a max 20 students per year and the master's is a two-year course. There are a good number of genetic counsellors who are graduating every year, but the number of roles was relatively limited in the past. So most genetic counsellors work in publicly funded tertiary clinics, so as part of hospital units, and they specialise in specific areas, whether it be prenatal genetics, familial cancer clinics, paediatrics or adult genetics. And historically, you'd only get to see a genetic counsellor if you had this strong family history of a genetic condition or a suspected diagnosis. That 2 to 3% of the population is serviced by the majority of genetic counsellors. But when we think about these public services, they have huge wait lists. So, you know, they can blow out from 6 to 18 months and they really need to triage cases based on the urgency that that support is needed. And one of the things that really fueled me to start Eugenia was, was an acknowledgement that you know, what happens to the 97% of the population that also wants to have this understanding? Where are they going to get care in an ethical way that they can utilise that information to make decisions in a time frame that's important to them when it matters most to them? So it is a really small profession. You know, it's really, really challenging. Is it mandatory to undertake genetic counselling, such as, you know, IVF, you do require going through kind of that counselling process. Is it the same with genetic testing? 
Genetic counselling is not mandatory, but historically it was very, very difficult to access genetic testing without it being provided by a genetic specialist or a genetic counsellor. So one of the really important things about anyone having a genetic test, whether it be for diagnostic purposes or for proactive purposes, which is what Eugene is all about, it's incredibly important that people understand the power of genetic information. So not all genetic tests are alike. And for anyone who's considering genetic testing, understanding what the potential outcomes of a specific test are, what the implications on their decision-making around health management are, what the risks and limitations are, as well as what the benefits are of a test is incredibly important. And genetic counsellors are uniquely placed to help explain the complexities around the medical implications of a genetic test, the genetic information itself, but also important things to consider like privacy of health information and what that might do for, you know, psychosocially, like how does a result affect how you perceive yourself, your vulnerabilities in the world, your options for improving your health outcomes. So genetic counselling isn't only provided by genetic counsellors, but we're certainly in a unique position to ensure that we're supporting people fully and providing that client-centred care, which really takes into account an individual's personal beliefs and value systems without being paternalistic. So a genetic counsellor would never tell someone what to do, but they would support them to understand what their options are and how those choices might have flow-on effects for them. And I guess when we think about genetics, it's really all about family. So the decisions that you make for yourself have implications for your children, for your siblings, for your parents. It's not just about diving in spitting in a tube and waiting for those results to come through because there are things and decisions that should be thought about in advance. It's a really interesting space and I'd love to kind of understand, you know, five years ago when you were starting to think about a brand or solving a problem like obviously there were 97% of the population that were engaging with genetic tests and it could be really valuable for those people. What other problems were you sort of like sitting in experiencing day to day that you thought that, you know, you thought, oh my God, there has to be a better way of doing this. Like what else was happening? First and foremost, something that we haven't touched on is the genetic technologies themselves. So when I first started out as a genetic counsellor back in 2007, we were really only using genetic testing for diagnostic purposes. So it was really expensive. You would really you know, drill down into what you thought the suspected diagnosis was and was there a known gene and could we even look at that gene to try and find the root cause for the symptoms that we were seeing. And that could take months. It was often done in a research setting. It cost thousands of dollars. And the chance that we would find an answer was, you know, if we could get to a 50% chance of finding an answer, that was incredible. But really over the last 10 to 15 years, these genetic technologies have evolved so wholly and enormously. So first and foremost, the cost of genetic testing has fallen. You know, we all think about this concept of Moore's law. Moore's law has this declining graph, but the cost of genetic testing is falling faster than Moore's law. So, you know, when we think about utilizing genetic testing beyond that two to 3%, we need that utility and the access to balance up and cost is a big 
proponent of access. So over the last 10 to 15 years, the cost fell, the utility of those genetic tests meant rather than just looking at one gene, we could start to look at hundreds at a time and really group those genes into sets or panels that helped us analyze a person's health risks more fully. So we currently at Eugene have three different products in market. We have um, an expanded reproductive genetic carrier screen, which helps people identify whether they're at increased risk of having a child born with a serious inherited condition, like cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs. We also have a proactive cancer risk test, which looks at a number of genes that increase the risk of developing cancer in one's lifetime. We know that about 10% of cancers are due to inherited gene variations, but that, you know, among the public is relatively unknown. And then we also do a proactive cardiac disease risk test, acknowledging that there is a strong impact of genetic predisposition towards developing different heart disease risks. And so for us being able to offer panels, we really needed the cost to be falling, the utility to be increasing in that we could start to test healthy people and provide them with medically actionable results. So for us, we needed to get to a point where the technology matched the expectation and that we could start to build a new service delivery model that acknowledged the bottleneck of, you know, the lack of genetic counsellors in the world to provide to support to people. So we really needed to overcome this bottleneck problem. We needed to overcome the lack of awareness problem. And we really needed to build a service that respected and acknowledged people wholly and their ability to make really informed decisions. And we needed to be able to deliver that in a way that felt good. You know, I think when we first started, Eugene Cornell and I very much said, we want to build a service that feels like you are talking to your best friend who just so happens to be an expert in genetics. And that's very much what we're building for. You mentioned uh, your co-founder, Kunal. You were on mat leave apparently at home with a baby and you started to think about how you could create this change and how you could, you know, make it more genetic testing, more accessible for a large majority of that population. How did you guys meet? I was on mat leave with my second son and my husband, who also works in the startup space, was at a co-working space called Inspire9 and he used to have office hours where he'd meet with wannabe founders who had ideas and he'd help them sort of scope it out and see how feasible they were. And he came home one day and he went, oh, I met this guy today. He has this idea that he can improve access to genetic technologies And I went, no, no one else is thinking about that. Why would someone think about that? You've been punked. And he goes, yeah, I'm not really sure. You should just meet him for a coffee. And I just thought this was ridiculous. I just had a C-section. I hadn't gotten out of my pajamas for six weeks. But, you know, I agreed to share my email and I got this incredible email that Cronall had written about his personal experience and why he felt genetic technologies were at a point where more of the population should be able to access them and he'd love to meet me. I agreed to the coffee. I got dressed for the first time in six weeks and I rocked up and I met this guy who was wearing a button-down shirt but like full hipster and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, (laughs) what do I even look like? 
And he pulled out his iPhone and he presented me with this wireframe of what a Eugene experience could be. What I didn't know at the time is that he'd spent the week mocking up this wireframe with a designer friend of his so that he could basically win me over. And I didn't learn about that for a while, but, you know, I left that meeting and went, (laughs) wow, you know, I've got the clinical know-how. I know nothing about business. I know peripherally what a startup is and what it might take to be a founder of a company, but I know nothing. And I came home and I told my husband that I was so excited that there was someone who had this shared vision of what the future of genetics could be. And I got all excited. And then I woke up the next morning and went, oh no, I've got this six week old. And what am I doing? I come from such a hierarchical paternalistic industry. Genetics is such a closed field. There's so few people who do it. It's so hard to get in. It's such a highly regulated area. I'm not going to risk my reputation, which I've worked so hard to build to essentially disrupt the whole way we think about offering genetics. And then I would let it go for a couple of weeks and I'd ignore it and Kunal would email me again and say, oh, I've had this idea, let's catch up to chat. And so I'd work myself up and I'd get nervous. It's like I was going on a first date every time. Oh, my God. Yeah. How stressful. So stressful. And I would leave these meetings hyped up. You? Totally wooing me. And I would leave these meetings and i think, we can do this. We can change the world. We can empower hundreds and thousands of people with this information that has so has historically been like really controlled. And then I would wake up the next morning and go, no, no, it's too hard. And that went on for about six months. And, you know, I coined the term with Kunal that it's founder dating. And I think, you know, we joke about it all the time, but he's my second partner in crime. I've got my husband who helps me raise and educate my kids and support me. And then I've got Cornell who's helping and building this business with me and then supporting me and teaching me along the way as well. So that's how we met. We plotted and thought and spoke to mentors along the way. And I think I I finally turned a corner when I spoke to Um, an incredible mentor of mine who's now our medical director, so Professor David Amor, who's an incredible geneticist and and mentor of mine. And and we had been trying to work out a way to create a population-wide portal to genetics. And in the years that we worked together, we could never work out a business model that was feasible. And all of a sudden, I was calling him. I was in Copenhagen at the time and I FaceTimed him from the town square. And I said, David, I've got this idea. I've met this guy. This is what we're thinking about. And he said, Zoe, I think this has legs. I think we should talk about this more. And I hung up the phone and I went, right, if I've got his trust and belief, we can do this. It's definitely not something that I took lightly. No. (laughs) No, I mean, six months of agonizing over a decision. I mean, sometimes, I mean, it's a very emotionally draining thing to be sort of going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Did you find that period of six months tiring or energizing or both? How did you navigate that? It wasn't my sole focus. I had a newborn and I moved overseas in that time as well. Just a couple of things. Had other things going on. (laughs) Yeah, just a few other things going on. Whenever I go to a conference or anything and they ask you to write like your name and then a descriptor, I always say expert juggler because the best things come out of tight situations. 
But, you know, I found it really exciting because it's something that I'd always wanted to do. I always knew that there was a better way to support more people and empower them with genetic information, not just deliver bad news. 10 years of delivering bad news really wore me down. And I think the turning point was becoming a mum and really knowing how enormous that impact was, empathising with an enormous loss that genetic conditions sort of put a bomb in your life and throw everything on its head. And I thought, if I'm in a position that I can make you know, a new reality for people experiencing genetic disease or genetic risk, I want to be part of that future. I don't want my children to turn around one day and say, hey, mum, but if you knew those technologies existed, why didn't you help more people? Why did you wait till it was too late? When you can't stop thinking about something, it means that you just have to try. In those early days, like after you committed to the business idea, what did those early days look like? Because I imagine building an experience, a company in health tech, there is no margin for error. So you can't really hack a first version of the product. You can't cut corners, you can't launch it and then iterate and you know that whole kind of startup approach of build it fast and learn and move forward. How did you go about building that first version of your product, your service, your experience? We have a zero policy or room for error. So there are some fundamental ethical rules that we live by at Eugene. So it comes down from the products that we're selling. So all the tests that we offer need to be clinical grade. They need to be medically actionable. We will only work with laboratories that have the international accreditation to provide those tests because we want the results that we issue people with to be able for them to take them to their doctor and to make really important life and medical decisions with them. Tests need to be ethnically inclusive. So there's a really big and embarrassing statistic that something like 80% of genomic data comes from men of Northern European ancestry. Not good enough. Wild. That's crazy. It's so awful. And when we think about the shift that we're wanting to move to a future of precision medicine, which relies on genomic data, if we don't increase the pool of who that data is coming from, the health outcomes and the disparities in that are only going to get worse. So for us, tests need to help all people and those results need to be meaningful and actionable. In terms of professionally offering a clinical genetic service, we follow the ethical guidelines and the professional expectations of what is required to offer genetic services. That comes down to regulations, both from a provision and a professional perspective. So anyone undergoing a genetic test needs to be able to provide informed consent. So how can we help bridge that gap, provide education, gain that consent, collect the information that we need to make sure clinically we're providing a sound service? And when we think about all those sort of practical things, they're all what you would see in a bricks and mortar service. But at Eugene, we're building a new service delivery model. It's entirely digital and we're wanting to put the consumer in the driver's seat. And in order to do this, we're needing to build safe and secure systems that follow HIPAA compliance as well as all these ethical and practical frameworks. And so for us, we didn't build anything 
for at least 18 months. I mean, one of the the greatest learning experiences and getting to know Kunal was that we built our first website together. So I would sit there and I would (laughs) build the content and Kunal would code the website and design it. And, you know, Kunal and I will have this enduring and forever joke that, you know, when all else fails, Kunal reminds me, but Zoe, I'm a designer. And he's so much more than that. But, you know, at the heart of it, we do believe that in order to communicate complex information, you need to make it simple and you need to make it feel good. And so we built a website, but we had a, something in the back end. I think it was MailChimp that let people put in their email address and we sent them, you know, in exchange for their email address, we sent them a PDF, which we designed an introduction to genetics and genetic carrier screening. And we slowly built this email list of people saying to them, we're building a service that's here to support you to access genetic carrier screening until we're ready. Leave us your email address. And when we're ready, we'll get in touch with you. It was really interesting. We'd we'd had this website live. We'd built relationships with allies. We'd interviewed all the different stakeholders on what we needed. We'd informed the TGA of our intention to launch this product And we'd signed a contract with an international laboratory who would do the testing. But from a tech build perspective, we were relying on existing products. So we had Shopify, we had MailChimp, we had Clinico as our patient management system. We had cloud-based G Drive set up to store data. We had shredders under our desk because we were still spending 30 minutes taking everyone's family history so we could learn what questions we needed to ask when we were building our automated patient history questionnaire. Everything was done like we would in a hospital setting. And what our goal was, was to reduce the time taken from a one-to-one patient-client perspective so that we could essentially scale this clinical function if one day Eugene became this living, breathing clinical service. We very much were piecing together things. We had an Airtable document where we were tracking where people were going to be at at their journey. For someone from a clinical background, I learned to HTML code at one point so that we could produce these reports. But I think the biggest thing is a lot of startups think, oh, I need to get this MVP app out so that I can see how it's going to work. But you need to understand what your customer wants We know what we need to do to offer a clinically sound practice, but when you're iterating on what people are used to, which is this paternalistic healthcare model to something that's client-centered and patient-driven and essentially direct-to-consumer, you don't actually know what people want until you ask them. And so we would ask and we would learn. In order to scale a clinical function, you really need to learn what's going to be safe and acceptable to automate. And I can tell you as a genetic counselor coming into a startup where the whole idea is to scale that clinical function and essentially take away a lot of what you're used to doing, that's really scary, but it's also incredibly exciting. complicated end-to-end process. 
what you just told us, it sounds like the start or the beginning of any good startup story, let's be honest. We've all plugged and played with, you know, all the different applications that are out there to start our own businesses. But as you said, it was all about kind of scale, optimizing, reducing the time that it would take to test and return results. So as you were kind of going through that process of optimizing end to end, what were some of the challenges that you faced? And perhaps you want to talk about those challenges in terms of what you faced kind of as the genetic counselor and being really close to the customer. David as the geneticist, what did he face? And perhaps Kunal as the kind of designer and head of kind of tech. What were the challenges that the three of you started to face as you ventured forward? I mean, it definitely wasn't the three of us by then. We'd brought on a number of key people in the team. We took about another year to bring on our CTO, who was very much building the technology as we were learning and iterating. And then we brought on a front-end dev. And, you know, we're very much focused on identifying the needs of the company and then going out to hire those people. And this is probably not going to answer your question at all. But I guess what I want to communicate is as a founder, you need to recognize your strengths and you also need to recognize what your black holes and limitations are. And as we were building, once we identified those gaps, we went out to hire people who were experts in those areas. And I have a personal policy on hiring is that I will only ever hire someone who is better than me because we need all the skill sets across all the multidisciplinary areas of design and growth marketing and development, front and back end, and also clinical expertise to really push the boundaries. I hope my team are listening to this and know that I don't just say it to them, but that I truly, truly believe it. But to be completely honest, we didn't have a growth function or growth team until the start of 2022. As a founder, you wear many hats. So our initial growth channel was B2B. So coming from a medical background, from genetics, I had strong relationships with a number of subspecialists, whether they be obstetricians or IVF specialists. And so our growth was really organic and probably for the first two or so years, we were growing 10% month on month without any marketing spend, without any flashy social media accounts. It was really through word of mouth and doctors beginning to refer their patients to us. So the point of tension, I think, which will always exist from a growth point of view is how quick can we grow while providing a safe and ethical service to the people who are trusting their healthcare with us? And we very much always fall back to the, are we doing a good job? Are people having a good experience? And are doctors and our clients trusting us to come back? We've been measuring NPS from the very, very beginning. And we're incredibly proud that even though we have had this organic growth and it has been accumulative over all these years, we have never let our NPS drop below 80, which we're really, really proud of. When you compare that to a healthcare average of six, it shows you that the point of tension in building a new service delivery model is worth it. 
that tension between how quick we build, how quick we automate, what we automate, and how that's presented to clients is the best fuel to build the best product. We used to have all-hands meetings and fortnightly sprints where we'd scope out all these huge projects that we were going to achieve. And we'd get to the end of the two weeks and we'd say, well, we haven't done it. What it really took was a faith that it didn't matter how quick we built the product, as long as we could iterate based on what our clients need, we could adjust to the demand for the product and we could really ensure that we knew in our hearts that we were offering a safe and ethical service. Come 2022, we've got an amazing growth and marketing team and we're really starting to understand the levers that fuel that decision. You know, it's not only a financial decision, it's a really personal decision. And a lot of people, the more they come to learn, the more they question the decision. So how do we psychologically support the people who are considering genetic testing in a way that's meaningful without blocking them from wanting to make that purchase. So what's motivating that person to get to us and how can we use that and support people to really understand them? And I think coming from a health background where we very much had a multidisciplinary team approach to care, I don't think I've ever worked in a team that's more multidisciplinary than in a startup. We're now a team of 19. We encompass everything from customer care to design to dev to clinical expertise, and we're all solving for the same problem. And getting those unique expertise and skills in the one room is always going to raise tensions. But in that tension, we come out with the best solutions and we're empathetic to the fact that no one's done this before and we can only iterate learn from our clients and from the doctors that we work with and evolve over time. And that's really, I think, the strength of where we're at at the moment. You mentioned before some of those growth levers, and I'm interested to know when we spoke earlier, you said that you're investing in this idea of smart growth. Yeah. And I'm really curious to understand how are you growing the business at the moment? What are those growth levers that you might be able to share with the audience um, who I think will be really interested to understand like how you've navigated that. I mean, it goes without saying that the world is in a very unusual place at the moment, both economically, with COVID, with the uncertainty of where the future lies, where that next dollar is going to come from. Smart growth to us is all about focusing on data Respecting your instincts, but focusing on what that data is telling you. Where are people hearing about you? What are their blockers? And really focusing on the metrics to help guide what you focus on, what you build next, what you pull back on, what you invest time in, how you shift your team members' skill sets around to help capitalize on those opportunities. And we very much have a whole team approach to growth. So it's not only about the growth and marketing team, it's, you know, how do we utilize the clinical expertise that we have to talk to doctors, to put out content into the world that is meaningful and impactful and true to Eugene in its essence and its brand. And, you know, when we think about smart growth, we think about LTV, so lifetime value of a patient. 
Right now, genetic testing is kind of a, a one-hit wonder. So people come to us for a specific reason, whether it be reproductive planning, cancer or cardiac risk, because they want that answer. They want that reassurance. They want that knowledge. They want to be empowered. But how, as Eugene, can we extend that lifetime value of a patient? Can we support them as a lifelong journey? Are there points in their life where other things are going to become relevant? We really want to engage them over that period of their lifetime. So looking at other products in different laterals as well as where we're at currently. And ultimately, you know, smart growth is all about being aware of your strengths. So genetics is all about family. I think we mentioned this before. If I go and have a genetic test and I'm found to be a carrier or a risk of something myself, that's directly relevant to my family members. So my brother's going to be, you know, his chance of being in the same situation as me is 50%. I'm going to want to tell my brother, this has come from my parents. So all of a sudden it's relevant to my parents or my cousins, my nieces and nephews, my children. And so acknowledging that genetic testing may be purchased by that individual, but that individual then becomes an ally and a spokesperson for you as a brand. And if you can create a strong, trusting relationship with that person, that person is going to be an important part of your growth potential. So for us, given the current economic and funding environment, we're very much focusing on CAC and LTV and really focusing on our strengths about what we know about the market, what we believe to be true, but also recognizing that growth will happen over time, but you need to maintain the trust that you have both from the consumers who pay for your product and, in our case, the doctors who recommend and refer. Just a side note, a lateral market, can we get some dog animal genetic testing? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many dogs out there and, and their owner's like, I don't know what my dog is, it's a mutt, but I'm like, oh, That'd be brilliant. Let's just let's find out what your dog is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are so many different forms of genetic tests. And, you know, we think about mutt testing or dog testing or Ancestry.com, like mm. where am I from? And for us at Eugene, we clearly, clearly want to differentiate ourselves from those direct-to-consumer products, 23andMe, they're all huge. They're really accessible. They've sort of got that clickbait attractiveness to them, but they're not medically actionable. They're not there to help really inform medical choices. And at Eugene, I'm sorry, we will never sell you oh, a dog genetic test. <laughs> sorry, Caitlin. We will never tell you whether you should be a marathon runner or a sprinter. Oh, my gosh. We're sticking to medical grade genetics for now. Because ultimately, in disrupting an environment like healthcare, like digital healthcare, like genetics, you need to have the trust and respect of that industry that you're disrupting because ultimately, we're working within their framework. And if we're not improving health outcomes, no one's going to trust or believe in our service anymore. So 
feel free to find your dog genetic test. I'm sure it's fun, but you won't find it on Eugene. Look, I will. I'm sure I can find it somewhere else. Damn it. All right, Eugene. That's fine. Sorry. That's fine. No, no stress. I'll go find that somewhere else. Um. <laughs> I just wanted to ask one quick question around fundraising and the current climate. We've mentioned a couple of times that it's really, really challenging and so many businesses in our community are finding it difficult to fundraise, even having fundraised rounds previously. I know you guys closed a $3.2 million round last year. So how has the current atmosphere changed your strategy around funding or has it changed your strategy around funding at all? Yes. The timing of our Series A was really fortuitous in that we raised at the end of August last year. And we've certainly had to rethink our strategy We obviously, like everyone, we've had to extend our runway to ensure that we can continue to grow and focus on the projects that are important to Eugene's success and and make it attractive to that next, hopefully, fundraising round. We've had to think about grants and other opportunities to bring in cash, which, you know, every founder should always be thinking about as well. We went into 2022 with the mindset that the world survived COVID, everyone's on holidays, the sun's shining. We built out this awesome growth and marketing team. We launched <laughs> partnerships with companies like Kin. We had all these influencer relationships in the pipeline. You know, we were going to double down and grow at all costs and show that hockey stick curve that our investors wanted so desperately. <laughs> we were going to go international. We had all these huge plans. And things change. And the financial climate has definitely not impacted us negatively yet, but certainly supplier pipelines, everything's becoming more and more expensive. And so how do we use that pressure to build a better product, make those relationships more meaningful? How can we refocus and concentrate on the projects and products with the most impact And how do we stay true to our mission? Because, you know, everyone goes, oh, should we go into cockroach mode? What should we do? And when your mission is to empower people with information that can help them make informed choices, all of a sudden spending $1,000 on a baby pram is less important than perhaps investing $700 on knowing that that baby's going to get to use that pram. I have no false qualms that fundraising a next round is going to be easy. I certainly think that enabling us to achieve those milestones by extending our runway is incredibly important. And really for us as a company, being wholly transparent with our team about where we sit and what we're hoping to achieve and what we need to do together to get there is only going to ensure that the best companies survive and thrive. And so while it would be nice to have a bottomless pocket, I think it forces us to really, really look at metrics and really react to them in a really smart way. To all the founders out there who are hoping to close rounds or looking to find investment, I guess talk to everyone, be really honest and open about what you're trying to achieve, but also respect that everyone's in a difficult position of uncertainty and 
in talking to people, they're going to need data. They're not going to believe you when you say, I can sell 50,000 tests next week if you just give me a million dollars because it's not like that anymore. This huge boom in health tech or SaaS businesses where you have these crazy valuations, I don't think there are going to be that many companies that can get that backing anymore for now. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned obviously having to extend that runway and perhaps put certain projects on hold or focus on other areas of the business that are critical right now. Can you give us an example perhaps of what, you know, you are working on, what you perhaps had to put on the back burner and bring to the front to focus on? Or are you able to share, maybe it's too early, the kind of story you're going into your next round of fundraising? Like what does that story look like now does the future of Eugene look like? So I don't think our future opportunities or our mission have deviated from where they were a couple of months ago. Fortunately Eugene has shown growth continuously since we launched and that growth historically has very much been product-led and so we know that the service and the product that we're delivering has value We know that there are customers out there. We're seeing in the healthcare landscape that there is a shift into people wanting to control their own health experience, you know, really be empowered, be proactive with their healthcare. And for us, and I think for investors, particularly investors who are experienced in health tech or in impact businesses, that mission and sort of lays a focus on that while being really flexible and acknowledging the tension for people in, you know, is this sort of a luxury test or is this something that I need? It all comes down to really, really understanding your market and ensuring that you're trusting your data but also understanding the external factors that are impacting any fluctuations. So we've got a couple of final questions. Um, This has been such a super fascinating chat. Genetics, not obviously, but it's not something that we have really spoken about um, at length, but also haven't had anyone on in this space. So it's really nice to have this conversation. I would love to know because I'm sure there are so many, but perhaps you can pull out a couple or just one. The biggest lesson that you've learned over the last five years while you've been building this business? I think there's a couple of core lessons that I've learned. So one, no one expects you to have all the answers and everyone is happy to help if you just ask. I think that's probably the standout lesson for me. Also, being a female founder in the health tech space, it totally takes an army to be able to do that and raise a family. And no one expects you to be brilliant at everything all the time. And I think, you know, you really need to find the people who support you when the times are tough, as well as help you celebrate and take the time to celebrate those wins. Because I think, you know, you never feel like you're doing enough and you always think you can do better. But really pausing to reflect on how far you've come is an important lesson to fuel you to keep going Definitely relate to those for sure. Yeah, it's important to stop and celebrate the wins because it's very easy to kind of skip over them and move on to the next thing. That's a really good lesson. I'd love to ask a question kind of around mindset because I think mindset is such a key part of 
anyone's, I guess, success. And I think building a business, we like to say, is like the biggest personal development journey that you can go on in your life, although we haven't had kids yet. So (laughs) I'm curious, what self-beliefs or stories of your own do you think have kind of supported you and helped you get to where you are? And then conversely, what ones do you think have sort of held you back? Okay, so mindset sort of helped me are very much having the space to be self-aware of when that imposter syndrome creeps in, that you use that as a strength. So why am I here? What am I trying to achieve? You know, there are 18 people in my team who believe in this mission and who are working with me, alongside me to build us up and to build Eugene into what we believe it can be. So I think having a, you know, a good sense of reality check that the world is unpredictable, you know, COVID has definitely made that a much more salient and real part of everyday decision making, but really creating space when that fear and self-judgment creeps in to say, what do other people see? How can I be the person that they need me to be? to make us both better. And I'm so, so lucky to have my team there daily to remind us that we are building a product to make the world a better place. And having that landscape view or top-down view of, you know, those daily struggles really drives me forward. Things that don't serve me is fear, fear of the unknown, fear I'm not good enough, fear of what people will think. It doesn't serve anyone. We all live with it, but we need to work out ways to shove it away a little bit and definitely writing down lists that, you know, I get stuck in, oh, my God, I'm worried about this and that and this and I can't get past it. My partner makes me keep a pen and piece of paper by my bed so in the middle of the night I write those down and then can focus on getting a good night's sleep and getting up in the mornings. Critical. It's a great little tip. Yeah. Mm. And finally, we just wanted to ask you, I think, you know, one, we we know where you're going, where Eugene is going, but also where are you heading personally? What's next for you? Oh, personally. So I have three sons at home, the youngest of whom is nine months old. So yeah, you know, the (laughs) eternal juggler. But I guess personally and professionally for me is really making sure that I can get out of the weeds of the business and start not only working in it, but working on it, making sure that I'm speaking to amazing women and people out there like you and sharing the message. We learn so much from people around us. And if I think about, we were onboarding someone new this week and we were just sharing with him the journey up until this point. And it helps you reflect on how far you've come. So I think for me, where I want to be and where I want to go in the future is, you know, maintain that growth mindset, make space for eternal learning, trust that when you've worried about something, it's because there's, you know, people that you can ask or turn to or reflect on. So I think for me, there's so much more to learn um, and so much more to give. And, and definitely, I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity to speak to you both today. As always, there were some great takeaways from this chat. Firstly, for us, it is okay to take time to get to know your potential co-founder before you commit. It is not a relationship to rush. 
As Zoe said, it is like a marriage and at times like a marriage, it can be stressful. So if you are looking for a co-founder, don't rush the process. Make sure that whoever you choose, you have the same vision and you share the same values. And secondly, have empathy for yourself and those around you. This is a really key leadership quality. As you probably know, a startup environment is intense, it's chaotic, and at times it's really likely that you and everyone else around you are doing things for the very first time. So you might find yourself in a position where there is tension, where the team can't reach a decision, or you all have really different points of view on how to solve a problem. It's stressful. You probably know, you've probably been there. So it's really important to make sure that you have empathy towards yourself and others, particularly through the really tough times. We hope you loved this chat just as much as we did. You can find us on Instagram at lady.brains. And don't forget to follow the pod on Apple and Spotify to be the very first to know when a new episode drops. 